Again, you can find Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 7 through 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with, from, with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asked, and who am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. And also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I say that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. May God bless the reading of his word. I've spent some time thinking this week about this passage, this book, how far we've come. And I thought about it like this, and I want your help. So I want you to think with me of some kind of a computer application or an app for your phone or something like that that will summarize the book of Ecclesiastes up to this point. Think of a computer app. Let's have those with the mics come on up here and you can look and see if anybody wants to share which software program or app summarizes the message of Ecclesiastes up to where we're at in our passage today. I thought of a good one, but I want to see if any of you got it as well. A computer program, software program, or an app to summarize the message of Ecclesiastes. Some of you are looking at me like this is the strangest thing we've ever been asked. Um, that's okay. Anybody want to share? Okay. The Bible app. Can, can you say it a little bit uh, louder? I didn't hear. The Bible app. The Bible app. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, let's clap for that. That was... That was good, but it's the wrong answer, okay? I'm looking for something else other than the Bible app. Someone else? What computer program? Google Classroom. Uh, Google what? Classroom. Google Classroom, if you're taking a class. Okay. All right. Oh, that's good. I didn't think of that. Someone else? Google Chrome to look it up. Okay. Google Chrome. Someone else? In the back, I saw a hand. Seems like the people on this side of the congregation are awake today, and those of you on this side need Starbucks. Um, So, we'll catch you all in a minute. Snapchat. Snapchat. Okay. That's a really good one. Snapchat. That's what we've seen. We've seen Snapchats of 
the writer to Ecclesiastes, as he's tried to think about his life, think about the life that he sees, and then tell it back to us and say, this is what I see under the sun. That's better than the one that I have, actually. Um, Someone else. Instagram. Instagram. Okay, why? I like that. Instagram, but why? Because there's so many photos on it, but it's just meaningless. It's just... <laughs> okay, we got to clap for that one too. Okay, that was really good. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless are your posts on Instagram. Meaningless, all is meaningless. Okay, someone else. Facebook. Facebook. Okay, why? Why? Like posts, like Instagram, same thing. Right. You get these little posts. Okay, and we've seen them week after week. Passage. After passage. One last person, then I'll share with you mine. Okay, one last person. Someone in the back? YouTube. YouTube? Why? Um, you could look up videos on summary. Okay. That's a good way of thinking. Now, here's what I thought. Um, is that a hand? Okay, what, 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 one more person. Um, Microsoft Word, because if you don't save, if you're not saved, then all your work is for nothing. Oh, Ooh. okay. That's a little bit closer to where I'm going. Um, I also uh, saw Ecclesiastes in terms of a Microsoft app. I apologize to all those of you who uh, operate on a different system, but I operate on Windows. And the particular program that struck me that summarizes how we see the book of Ecclesiastes functioning is Windows Media Player. Now, why is that? What does Media Player do? It plays something... It can stop, it can pause, it can rewind, okay, and then it can go fast forward. And in this particular passage that we're going to see today, we're going to see that that's exactly what the narrator does. Uh, the first thing he does is he rewinds. Look at the first verse of the text. Those of you who have your Bibles in front of you, Ecclesiastes 4-7. Again, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. He's rewound to something that we've heard thousands of times or dozens of times or even many times since the book has begun. Meaningless. Meaningless. That's the rewind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Someone in the congregation told me that recently their son got in the car on his way to school and he threw up his hands and he said to his dad, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless as he went off to school. And I've been charged by some of the parents in CM that in emphasizing that our work is meaningless, I'm not challenging our youth to work hard in school. So I apologize. Um, I'm here to preach the Bible, not to make successful students. But I hope that the two can come together in my message. That oh, I hear a lot of, a lot of comments today. Um, but, but here's the point, honestly. We're dealing with our work. How do we work? That's what the passage is dealing with today. And as the writer to Ecclesiastes first rewinds and reminds us of the meaninglessness of life, then he now moves it into play. And what do we see in verse 8? What do we see in the middle of the story of what's playing on our media's player? We see a man, one man, all alone. He had neither son 
nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So what we have here is one solitary person working all by himself. So there are questions that then arose in his mind. And here what we have is we have a pause. We have a pause in the second half of verse 18. And the pause is something that I want to bring to your attention today as I ask you to pause. To pause in your life. To pause in what you're doing in the middle of all of your toil and everything you have to do and all the things you think about you thinking about doing today, this week, this month, this semester, this life, and consider two questions that come from the passage. Notice the first question that comes out. For whom am I toiling? He asked. Let me ask you that question today. Who are you working for? Those of you who are students, who are you studying for? Who? Some of you are saying, myself. Some of you are saying, my parents. Some of you are saying, my goals, my, my dreams. For whom are you to- toiling, working hard? What about those of you who are in a job right now? Who are you working for? The passage causes us, indeed invites us, to ask that question. For whom am I toiling? Here's the first option. The first option is, is that you're just doing it for yourself alone, just like the person that we see in the Snapchat right here, the one man, the picture of the one man, working as hard as he possibly can just for himself. Where is that going to lead? It's going to lead to the crisis of faith that he's in right now as he looks at his life and he asks the question, why am I doing this? Why am I working so hard? And many people are simply working for themselves alone. And I have news for you from the scriptures. If you're just working for yourself, it's going to lead to discontentment. It's going to lead to questioning. And it's going to lead ultimately at times to misery. If the only reason why you're doing what you're doing is for yourself. And in the passage, we have a reminder by the statement that the man was all alone and he didn't have son nor brother, that many people are working hard, not for themselves alone, they're working for their families. And what's wrong with that? On the one hand, absolutely nothing. It gives you a purpose, it gives you a greater purpose other than just yourself. And I know many of you out there are working very hard for your families and you find that your parents have worked very, very hard for you. But there's another option of who we're working for, and that's we're working for the Lord. And it doesn't matter if you're single, working alone, or whether or not you're working in a family unit, that when you're working for the Lord, that redeems everything that you're doing and it raises it to a higher purpose because you're not working to please man. You're not working to please the eyes of the person who's above you. You're working to please your Lord. So I challenge you today to consider that question, for whom are you toiling? But notice, there's another question. And at this point, what we have is not only a pause in our Windows Media Player, what we have is a person who you might say is looking at his life now from the end looking back. So let's fast forward to the end of your life and now ask yourself this question. Why are you working so hard and depriving yourself of enjoyment? I was captivated this week by a new book that's, that's come out. It's written by a woman who is a hospice nurse. 
And a hospice nurse is someone who takes care of people who are dying. And after ministering and helping and serving so many people who had died, many people who were cancer patients, many people who were suffering with all kinds of terminal diseases. Um, one woman, her name is Bronnie Ware, she wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, A Life Transformed by the Dearly Departing. And in this book, she shares five particular uh, regrets that she heard people saying. And what do you think was the big regret that relates to the passage that we're looking at today? What did people say as they were about to die and as they looked back on their deathbed? As they asked that question, why am I working so hard? What do you think their regret was? Anybody? What was their regret? Absolutely. Regret number two was, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Because here's a person in Ecclesiastes who's working so hard without taking a break, without taking time to smell the roses, sniff the coffee, take the vacation. We've got a person who's simply working and working and working and working. And brothers and sisters, that's the world that we live in today. People are challenged to work seven days a week, to not take a Sabbath rest. To do more, you know, it was interesting. I even logged in um, to our uh, our pastors' uh, different um, records of how how many days off we've taken in vacation, and I noticed that even we as pastors of the church sometimes find it hard to take our vacation days because we're working, we're working, we're working. This is what Bronnie Ware says. This came from every male patient that I nursed. I wish. I hadn't worked so hard. They missed their children's youth and their partner's companionship. Women also spoke of this regret. But as most were from an older generation, many of the female patients had not been breadwinners. All of the men I nursed deeply regretted spending so much of their lives on the treadmill of a work existence. And you know what happens when you live just to work, 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 work? It leads to the discouragement. It leads to some of the emotional difficulties. When you are living just to work, you're stressed out. I can tell it. You talk about it. Some, sometimes it leads to misery. So what's the antidote here? God has given us work. This is what God gave to Adam in the garden. Uh, the task of, of toiling and, um, in a sense, tending the garden, and then after that, trying to make sense of a, of a world where sin has entered into it, and it's even harder to be a farmer, harder to raise the crops, harder to subdue the earth. But why are we working so hard, and how can we work in a way that God wants us to? You see, what the Lord wants us to consider today is not to live the stressed out existence that comes from failing to pause and reflect on why am I doing what I'm doing, and why am I doing Work, 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 and not taking the time to enjoy life. Think of it like the Apostle Paul did in Philippians 4. Paul lived in a state not of being stressed out, but even from prison, he writes to the Philippians and says, I've learned how to be content in all things. I've learned the secret of both having an abundance and suffering want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, what concerns me as I get to know y'all and as, as I get a chance to pastor you is I hear so many of you are stressed out. Students are stressed out taking 
taking their tests. Think of what a blessing it is to be able to have the opportunity to study. So many of you are stressed out in your work. Be thankful to God that you have a job to to go to and realize, like what Paul said in Philippians 4, that the secret of living life is coming to that point where it doesn't matter if you have a lot or have a little. If you're suffering challenges or if you're in the middle of amazing blessings, you can say, I've learned the secret of being content in all things. I ask you today as we consider these two questions, are you content? If you're not content, then you're probably just working for yourself. And what you need to do is start living your life in the presence of the Lord. When you live your life in the presence of the Lord, you find what the psalmist says. We sang about it um, just a moment ago in, in, our, in the songs. Better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. The psalmist said that in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy. And in his right hand there are pleasures forever. Do you have that joy today? That's what the Lord is seeking us to consider as we go through this passage. But as we go on, we see um, not only does working hard for only yourself bring discontentment, questioning and misery. Look at the second point on my outline. As we go on in the passage, we see something else. He switches from talking about someone who's alone to actually now someone who's together. And so... He moves from the theme of being alone in verses 7 and 8 to now moving to the theme in verse 9 of cooperation of two people being together. And the first thing he says is that two are better than one. Now, that's hard to believe today because in our individualistic society, we often think that you just need to be self-actualized and do it yourself. But from the standpoint of the Bible, that's never the standpoint. Instead, we have a cooperation. We have an interdependency. And right from the start, we're forced to consider something that goes against our culture in many ways, which is that two are better than one. Think back to what happens in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, first we have the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we have... The story rewound and then played again as now he's focusing in, the writer in uh, Genesis chapter 2, to the creation of man and the creation of woman. So first God creates a man and God creates Adam and puts him in a garden to eat of all the fruit of the garden and to till the garden. But then uh, God also then brings all the animals to Adam and Adam's first job, in addition to taking care of the garden, is naming the animals. It must have been an amazing um, experience. I wonder how we get some of the names that we have for animals, but it goes back to the garden and Adam in the garden. But here's Adam working hard, enjoying the fruit trees. But there was one problem, God said, and that problem was he was alone. And the Bible says this didn't come from Adam. He didn't wake up to realize it. He was happy in a sense, doing his job, eating the fruit, playing with the animals. He was the first zookeeper. And in the middle of that, God speaks his word into that picture we have of creation and says it is not good for a man to be alone. And we see right from the beginning pages of Scripture that cooperation is better than individuality. So what does the writer say in verse nine? Two are better than one. And then he gives reasons. Reason number one is because they have a good return for their labor. So my point is that cooperation in business leads to profit. It's better if you go into business with someone else than if you're doing it by yourself. 
Uh, you might find this hard to believe, but I actually used to be a businessman. Um, I'm, as a pastor, I've become all things to all people to preach the gospel. And in order to be in China, preaching the gospel, training house church leaders, which I was doing in South China for a period of time, um, from 2004 to 2007, I started a business, in a sense, as a, as a legitimate outlet for me being in China. So I started a language center. And I found that by cooperating with a mainland Chinese Christian, I was able to do a lot more than if I tried to, to start the center by myself. So I learned from firsthand that in business, cooperation leads to profit. But notice what happens as the passage goes on. Cooperation in adversity leads to help. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. And if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. We see this throughout our lives, but for example, think of sports. You're not supposed to snorkel alone. I love snorkeling. You're not supposed to go out alone because something can happen to you. The one time I didn't listen to this, I was in Hawaii and we were uh, snorkeling. We were on the Kaneohe Bay military base and I got a little bit too close to the mouth of the bay and I was out there by myself and I'm getting dragged out into the open um, ocean with a current that I couldn't control. And one of my um, marine friends jumped in the water put on his snorkel, came out and rescued me. And I said to myself, stupid idiot, why did I go out by myself? Because if you don't go out in pairs, then when you fall into adversity, you have no one to help you. So the Bible even tells us two are better than one, because if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. Even Jesus Christ sent his disciples out two by, by two, because when you fall down, you need help. But notice the next thing. This is interesting, and I think that because we live in a modern world, we often don't really um, think about what happens in verse 11. Verse 10 tells us, you know, to pity the person who falls and has no one to help them up. But then in verse 11, we find that cooperation in winter leads to warmth. Verse 11. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. This is at a time where we didn't have modern heating. All of us go home to nice houses, we go in the house, we check, see that the temperature is just a little bit too low, we turn it up, and then five minutes later we feel great. Well, that wasn't what it was like when the writer to Ecclesiastes wrote Ecclesiastes. When the winter came, you were cold, and if you're cold, you needed to get with someone, because if you're just lying down by, by yourself, you're going to freeze to death in some instances. Uh, you may not think that, that, that this verse is relevant at all to your life, but if you're in the military or you go into the military, some of my friends have done, you will find that actually it's very relevant. Um, let me show you um, something that I got off of the, the Internet. Um, this comes from a website that says 11 things that a military buddy will do that a civilian BFF probably won't. Okay, so what do you think my next slide is going to be? You ready? Here we go. Let's see it. What does it say? Can anybody, can, can anybody read it? Um, 
The thing that your military buddy will do that your BFF civilian friend won't do is cuddle under a woobie to stay warm. And they do that because they're actually out in combat, in battle. It's freezing in Iraq at night. And so they're on top of each other under a woobie so that then they can still shoot somebody who's um, coming after them and not freeze to death in the process. Well, this comes right from Ecclesiastes, but it's irrelevant to most of your lives unless you're going into the military. So I now move on to my next point. Um, that cooperation in business leads to profit, in adversity leads to help, in winter leads to warmth, and then notice, in battle leads to victory. Verse 11. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. You know this expression? I got your back. Or if you watch TV or movies or 24, which I was addicted to, um, that I confess in your presence, and many of these other great action shows out there, you find that when one person goes into battle, the other person says, I'll cover you. Well, without that other person to cover you, then something horrible can happen. So the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us that cooperation in battle leads to victory. At the end of verse 12, we have... An interesting statement. After saying, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. It then says this. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And I've done a lot of marriage counseling in my ministry. And I found that this verse is often used to tell couples that if you're going to get married and you don't have Jesus in the middle of your marriage, that third person, then you might encounter a lot of difficulties. So they use this verse to say, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken, so make sure when you get married that you have Christ in the center of your marriage. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that having Christ in the center of your marriage is very, very important. And I also think that bringing the Lord into everything we do is, is important, which is, one, which is why, beginning this week, at the end of the, the service, we're going to, several of us are going to be up here, and if you'd like prayer for anything, particular. We're going to be up here because we want to bring you into the presence of the Lord. And also, we want to pray together at least monthly. So we're beginning to host a prayer meeting meeting at my house on Sunday nights, beginning on Sunday, December 3rd. Um, And you'll see this in the bulletin. And I want to invite you to come out and pray. But to bring God into everything is super important, but that is not what this passage is teaching in verse 12. It's not teaching anything so much about marriage or bringing Jesus into your marriage. It's simply saying that when you bring three into the cooperative um, process, it's better than having two. So we need to be careful that we don't twist verses out of context to say what they don't say. But notice what happens as, as we go on in the passage. What happens in... Verse 13 and following. We have a picture. We have a picture of a ruler. Actually, of two different rulers. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The first thing we can see as we come to verses 13 through the end of the chapter is, is that a wise young ruler is better than an older, foolish king. Wisdom in the scriptures is moral excellence. 
is someone who's living their life for the Lord out of the power of the Lord. And here, what matters is not how old you are or how rich you are, but what matters is how wise you are. So that where you've come from doesn't matter. What matters is where you're at right now. And so wisdom can elevate you to a position of authority that you might think you wouldn't be at otherwise. I find in life today that there are two things often that are looked down upon. One is youth and the other is poverty. And here we have the two coming together where neither makes a difference in discrediting a person or crediting a person for ruler, for being a ruler, for serving in governance. Today, I think that we've moved very far away from that because often in able to govern in this modern age and in this modern land and in America, what you need is to be rich. So coming from poverty, it's almost impossible to get to some position of, of governance in our country today. So we've moved very far away from that. But notice also there's another principle that comes from this little section in Ecclesiastes, and it's that adversity and poverty don't nullify the wisdom. In other words, this is teaching us that your past doesn't define what you can do in the present or where you're going in the future. And the mistake that so many people make today is, is they look only at your experience as they try and figure out what you can do right now and where you might go in the future. Where here, here was a youth that came from poverty and came from adversity and yet was able to rule in such a way that his wisdom established his popularity. And then notice, my last point, is that those who come after the wise and popular ruler cannot please the people. When people like the ruler because the ruler rules out of wisdom and out of fairness, then the person that follows that person has a very, very hard lot and a very, very difficult role to fill. You see this in churches, you see this in in, in just about every aspect of society, that when you have someone who's really good and they're at the top, they're in control, and then they leave, then often the person who follows them has a very, very, very difficult time. So what does Ecclesiastes do now as we think about where does it take us? It takes us not, in, not only into the last statement of the chapter, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It takes us into the presence of, of the ruler who came from poverty, who came from no background, who was despised, rejected, but yet was received by God and worshipped by those who know that he was the rightful ruler of wisdom, the one who is Jesus Christ. So as you read Ecclesiastes, I challenge you to look to Jesus and see that he ultimately fulfills all that we see in the passage and gives us the hope that the one that we follow is the one where no one will ever succeed him because he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of nations, the one who's coming back and the one that we look to. So Ecclesiastes causes us not simply to reflect on everything under the sun, but to reflect on everything that will happen when Christ our Lord comes back for us. So let us pray now and turn to Jesus. Lord, as we've 